Well, it's good to be with all of you, and it's good to be back. Um, hey, I'm up, I'm up here. Can one of you grab me one of our uh, communion uh, things? Uh, I don't. We don't have a word. Vessels. Can someone grab me a communion vessel and toss me one? Oh, thank you so much. I got one right here. Two come up. Nailed it. All right. Um, Good. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Trevor. It's good to be with you. It's good to be back. Uh, I was not here last week because I found out last week that I had tested positive for COVID. And though I didn't have any symptoms, uh, following the CDC guidelines kept me away from being in the pulpit. And I am so thankful that you got to have Markel with you last week. He did a wonderful job. And yeah, thank you. Well, thank Markel. It was wonderful to have him uh, with you all. He's a good friend. And I got to watch at home online and, uh, and enjoy that experience. I was thankful for that. So those of you who are in person, welcome. And those of you who are online, uh, it's good to have you with us as well. If you have a Bible, would you open up to John chapter 13? John chapter 13. As a church, uh, we are committed to spending much of our time together on Sunday mornings, opening this book, God's Word, the Bible, and walking through the text verse by verse. And as a church, we find ourselves right now on the other side of the Christmas season in the life of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So much of what I'm trying to do in our time together on Sundays is not to stand before you and to give you a bunch of opinions that I have about maybe culture or or politics or the world, but rather it's my job and it is a uh, a job that is, I take very seriously and is filled with immense pressure oftentimes, is to try to open this sacred holy book, which is the very word of God, and to allow it, to point to it, and, and to allow it to help shape our lives, to shape our minds. And so uh, I fail in my job, and we fail as a church, if you do not hear God correct you, encourage you, challenge you, equip you, shape you by his very word. So we fail if you leave this morning with more of my words. I want and so desperately am praying that his word would take deep root in our lives and change us. And that's what we're about as a church, and we're going to do that a little bit in John 13 this morning. As you're turning to John 13, I just want to pause and say we... Uh, we uh, we in December we had our big year end giving campaign, and we we talked about how we the, what we bring as a church to make. Uh, 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 what we do as a church possible has to happen in December. And every year we're praying that the Lord would provide uh, through his people. And we are so grateful that we met our year-end giving goal. This that last December, God provided richly for us. And so we are very excited about what the Lord has for us this year. And I want to just thank you for the ways in which you uh, recognize the work of God taking place in our congregation and the way that you are supporting us as a church as we proclaim the gospel and as we seek to see the people who are we call neighbors and friends in our city hopefully come to know the goodness of God through the proclamation of his gospel and for, the, uh, for, for us to become and to live as faithful disciples of Jesus. So thank you for that. It's fantastic. All right. We are in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 
Um, last week, Markel, I told Markel, hey, talk about whatever you want to talk about. Um, because uh, it was kind of a last-minute deal that he had to be with us. So uh, he had us in uh, Joshua. And it's so good now to be here, uh, back in the Gospel of John. Let me pick up from where we were two weeks ago, just recapping really quickly. We find ourselves in the upper room. Jesus is headed towards the cross. He is with his closest friends, his 12 disciples. They are sharing a meal together. And just last week, Jesus, or two weeks ago, the last text we look at in John, Jesus gets up, grabs some water, wraps a towel around his waist and begins to do something scandalous. He begins to do something to his disciples, his students, his followers, these young men who he oversees. He does something that many Jewish slaves were relieved from having to do. He washes their feet. And after he washes their feet, he then tells them that the example he has set before them is, is to point in two directions. One, washing their feet is supposed to help them see what he's going to do for them on the cross, that they need to be washed by Jesus, that they will need to receive and trust in him in order to be made clean. And then secondly, that they are to be the kinds of people who, having been washed by Christ, would then go and wash others. Jesus is at this meal with his 12 disciples. And sometimes we forget that there's 12 of them. Well, we don't forget that there's 12 of them. We forget who the 12 of them are. How many of you, by show of hands, could just, off the top of your head, name all 12 disciples? Yeah, almost none of us. Understandably so. Some of them get very, very, very little amounts of attention paid to them. But let me remind you of who they are, who's in the room. Jesus is in the room, and here he's got Simon, who's also called Peter. And Peter's got a brother named Andrew, and they've been walking with Jesus for the last few years. You've got another set of brothers, James and John. They're Zebedee's boys. They're feisty, the sons of thunder. John, this brother of James, wrote the book that we're in. They're there too. So you got these two groups of brothers. You got Philip is there. You got Bartholomew, who they call Nathaniel. You've got Thomas, who they call Didymus, which means the twin. That's his nickname, Tom the twin. You've got Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector, very sympathetic to Rome, works with Rome, collects taxes. Then right next to him, you've got the other James, son of Alphaeus. You've got Simon the Zealot. He's against Roman military, he's against the Roman Empire, and so he's sympathetic to the cause of using any sort of maybe military aggression against the Romans. He probably looks over at Matthew. They're probably arguing sometimes. You've got Judas, who goes by Thaddeus. He's got a Dad, whose name's James, but that's a different James. And you got a different Judas, Judas Iscariot. And these are the 12, and they're, they're different ages. They have different 
philosophies, different political alignments, different relationships to Jesus. They, their first interaction with him was different. They've had different amounts of conversation with them. And, and here he has them up in this room. And they're sharing a meal together. And Jesus has been hinting that the end is coming for him. And we pick up in John 13, verses 18 through 38. The disciples have clean feet. They've been told to clean others' feet. And Jesus has just told them that if they do this, that they would be blessed. And then in verse 18, everything changes. The mood in the room changes. They just had their feet washed. And now Jesus is going to inject some real awkwardness into their meal. John 13, verse 18. After saying, if you do these things, you'll be blessed, Jesus says, in verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. The, The blessing he just talked about, he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. So Jesus just said, wash each other's feet. And then he said, after after saying you'll be blessed, he said, not all of you. There's 13 of them in this room. Jesus says, not all of you are going to be blessed. One of you, one of you who's here is going to betray me. Jesus says, I know, because I chose all of you. I know you better than you know yourselves. And one of you is going to turn against me. And this has been prophesied a long time ago. So this prophecy is coming to fruition. And then he says in verse 9 that I'm t- 19, I'm telling you this now before it happens. So that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Jesus says, this is another piece of evidence that's pointing you to the reality that I am the Messiah. I've gathered you together. I've served you. I've loved you. I've walked with you. I've now washed your feet. But one of you is going to betray me. And they must be feeling and thinking, what is he talking about? It's a small gathering. There's only 13 of them and they're looking around and here is Jesus who is claiming to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And here he is proclaiming that that someone who will betray him is in the room with him. And he's saying, I'm telling you that this is going to happen so that when it does happen, you'll know that I know. You'll know that I have a different kind of knowledge. You'll know that I'm not just ordinary. It'll be another piece of evidence that I am the Messiah. And then in verse 20 he says, very, very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So Jesus in verse 20, once again, he, his view is I am the Messiah. I know what's going to happen. I've chosen you. I've brought you here. One of you is going to betray me. 
I'm going to then send you all out, and Jesus will be sending people out, and he has been sending people out since since this moment, right, since the, the moment of Christ's resurrection and then sending of the 12, he has continually sent out disciples all over the world, including even today. And Jesus says, whoever I send out, when they receive the message that I proclaim, when, when you receive the message of people who are proclaiming Jesus, you're receiving Jesus. And if you're receiving Jesus, you're receiving the Father who sent Jesus. Jesus is explicit. Receiving him is how you receive God. Do you want to know God? You must receive Jesus. Do you want to know God's love for you? You must know Jesus' love for you. How you relate to Jesus is how you relate to God. You can't have God without Jesus. Now this is a controversial claim in our world today where everybody is seeking a way to get to God in their own way, by their own methods, with their own tools and their own Bibles. But there is only one word of God and Jesus makes it clear that to receive him is to receive God and you don't get God apart from Jesus. Jesus is troubled in verse 21. So after he said this, it says that he's troubled in his spirit. And he testified, he said, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And in verse 22, it says that his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. We, we, we know it's Judas, right? If you've been around Christian history at all right now, you know the betrayer is Judas. But I want you to see what's happening in verse 22. They don't know it's Judas, right? Verse 22 says that, that they looked around at a loss to know what he was talking about. What did he mean? Which one did he mean, right? You, you'd like to think that in that moment, they're all sitting there going like, yeah, yeah, it's that guy. It's Judas. Like, we've been around for... No, you need to know that Judas hasn't done anything that's made it abundantly obvious to the rest of him that he is the betrayer. And so in the middle of this meal, where, unlike us, we sit at tables in our meal, they're laying down on their sides at this table. And Jesus has said this controversial thing. And there's all this chatter that's happening around them. And in verse 23, one of them, it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, he's reclining next to Jesus. It's, in fact, the text reads that he's almost, he's almost at Jesus' chest. He's like so intimately close because they're all laying kind of together, the 13 of them at this table, probably all talking. And in verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to John, who's probably sitting, like I said, right next to Jesus, leaning against Jesus. Peter is probably also very close. So Peter kind of looks over at John and says, ask him which one he means. So here's Peter. He kind of makes eye contact with John. John, who's he talking about? And John, so close to Jesus, whispering as others are probably talking. This question is, no one really hears it. Leaning back against Jesus, verse 25, John says to him, Lord, 
Who is it? And Jesus answered in verse 26, It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Peter says, John, ask, ask Jesus who it is. John says, Jesus, who is it? And Jesus says, watch who I give this bread to. Now, giving bread is a symbol and sign of hospitality. It's, it's a symbol of service. Remember, Judas has clean feet. And now here Jesus is, and he's going to dip some food into, into a, a dish. And then he's going to give it to Judas as, as a symbol of he's still serving Judas. But in this moment, he wants John to know. The others are still unaware, but he wants John to know who it is. So he gives the bread to Judas, and Judas, who has been committed to betraying Jesus, it says at this moment, he is filled with Satan. And then Jesus, in, in verse 27, looks at Judas and says to Judas, Judas, what you're going to do, do it quickly. And verse 28 says, no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. They didn't know what he was talking about. See, see, it's not obvious to others that even when Jesus says to Judas, hey, Judas, what, what you're going to do, do it quickly. It's not obvious to them that Judas is the betrayer. In fact, the, the very next verse says that since Judas had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. So when Jesus says, Judas, do it quickly, and Judas gets up and Judas leaves, that's what happens in verse 30. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And I love, you just, John loves to show you the difference between light and darkness, day and night. Judas is, is, is in the presence of, of the light of the world, and here he goes off into the darkness, filled with the work of the Satan in him as he goes on his way to betray Jesus. The rest of the disciples are unsure exactly what's happening. Is he going to go sell some stuff? Is he going to go buy supplies? Is he going to go give money to the poor? They're not sure what's happening. Judas leaves into the night. And then in verse 31, Jesus, it says, when, when, when Judas was gone, He's left the room, and Jesus says in 31, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. 32, if God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. A sort of heavy statement that Jesus makes, referring to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man, for those of you taking notes, is this image of a divine figure that comes out of the book of Daniel. When we think of Son of Man and Son of God, it's fascinating because when we think of Son of God, we think of divine. And when we think of Son of Man, we think of human. 
But in, in Jesus' world, those are the opposite, actually. The Son of God is a way of talking about him and his humanity. The Son of Man is a divine figure. So Jesus is saying, now the Son of Man is glorified. At this moment, God is being glorified. I am showing you right now what God is like. It's clear who I am. It's clear who God is. And God is being glorified. And then Jesus says to the disciples, my children, verse 33, I will be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. So Jesus gives them this endearing, he calls them my children. I'm only going to be here a little longer. You're going to look for me, but I'm, I'm leaving, and where I'm going, you can't come. And then he says in verse 34, a new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says he's giving them a new command. And if you're a Bible reader, you'll know that the command to love others is there from page one. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, the love, the new command of love is not just to love. It is to love as Jesus has loved. He is giving a fuller expression of what it means to love. We're not called just to love people. When people say, oh, we got to love people, yes, how do we love? The answer, according to Jesus, is we love like Jesus loved. Jesus washes feet. Jesus serves his enemies. Jesus loves continually. How will people know that we are followers of Jesus by the way we love. Love for enemies, love for others. That's how people will know you're a disciple. You should know your Bible. You should spend time with Christ. You should, you should be so enamored with Christ. You should so prioritize him that when you're, when you're in the world, people can smell Jesus on you. They can sense the presence of the Spirit. Those are all things that must and should happen. But Jesus does not say that that's how people we will know that we follow Jesus. They say, he says that we'll know we are his disciples by how we love. Jesus makes this profound point, and Peter speaks up. Of course Peter speaks up. Peter's always speaking up. But he, he kind of didn't pay attention to the love part. He still got that thing ringing in his ears about Jesus leaving. So he says in verse 36, Lord, wait, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. You can't come now, Peter, where I'm going. You can't go now, but eventually you will. And Peter asked in verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Oh, the irony of that statement. 
Lord, why can't I follow you? I'll lay my life down for you. And then Jesus says to Peter, will you really lay your life down for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. You've probably been to like an awkward meal before. But have you ever been to one this awkward? Think of the strangeness of having your feet washed and now a conversation that emerges. This whole text, John, the writer of this gospel, wants you to see this thing that's happening in the middle of this story. There's these two things that are happening. You've got betrayal and you've got love. There's these three people in the story. You've got Judas, you've got Jesus, and you've got Peter. And reflections on betrayal, denial, and then love in the middle. First, you've got Judas. Judas is going to betray Jesus. We don't know why. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a clear explanation for why it is that Judas betrays Jesus. It could it be money. He, he's in charge of the money. He sells Jesus out for money, but then he will return the money. It could be about money. There's an issue that happens just the day before this with, with, with Judas and Jesus being anointed with perfume and Judas not being all that happy about it. Is it about money? Is that the reason? We don't know. Is it disillusionment? Maybe Judas feels this sense of like, yeah, Jesus, you've got a plan, but I don't really like your plan. I kind of like my plan. And I think that actually... While you seem to be smart and all, and you can do cool, you know, supernatural things, and you're a wise teacher, I got a better idea of what should happen. Is it disillusionment? Is it, we don't know what it is. Here's what we do know. Here's what I want you to see. Judas externally looks like he has trusted Jesus. He is externally right, but internally he is so wrong. I was struck the last couple of weeks in this text by especially verse 22. Judas had them fooled for three years. He had been with them and Judas' attitude in the presence of Jesus was nothing that caused anybody to say, whoa, there's something wrong with you. You, you clearly haven't fully trusted Jesus. No, he was really good at faking it. Three years together in Judas, it was all show. His heart was always bent on his own way. He was a betrayer of Jesus. When they sang songs, he sang songs. When they talked about God, he talked about God. When they were amazed, he was amazed. He went with the flow, he went with the crowd, he checked the boxes, did the thing. Nobody knew in that room that he was the betrayer. Everything looked right for Judas. His whole life looked right. But deep inside, his heart never had been given over to Jesus. He never trusted Jesus. He just went through the motions. Is that you this morning? Have you somehow convinced yourself that God can't see right into the recesses of your heart? 
God knows when he's being worshipped and he knows when he's being used. For some of us, that looks like using God rather than serving God, rather than following God, rather than loving God. It's seeking to use God for your own kingdom, your own agenda. Giving lip service to the kingdom while building your own. Some of you are are guilty of living the kinds of lives where you're telling other people they should trust Jesus. Meanwhile, you don't. The reality is, there are Judases here in our church. And it's my prayer that rather than being entered by Satan, we would fall at the one who just wants to wash our feet. It's not just about Judas, though. He's a central character. He's the betrayer. Peter is more inconsistent. Peter is on fire one moment and denying the next. Peter's singing the songs on Sunday and then forgetting about the songs he sang on Monday. Peter's reading the Bible in the morning and forgetting what he read five minutes later. Peter is overconfident even about his own faithfulness. Verse 37, Jesus, I'll die for you. Anything for you, God. And then Jesus tells him, Peter, you're on the verge of denying me in just a few moments from now. When the pressure is on, Peter, you're not going to make it. Peter, you're not going to make it till morning. Some of us here are like Judas, sure. A whole heck of a lot of us are like Peter. And the text wants you to see this morning that unfaithfulness is easier than love. Love is hard. Sacrifice is hard. Faithfulness is hard. Commitment is hard. It is so much easier to be unfaithful. When things are easy, it's easy to be faithful. When we're hanging out with Jesus, getting our feet washed, eating the meal, everything's great, that's all wonderful. And then we step out into the world, which is hostile to Jesus or to our Christian faith. And like Peter, we very quickly pivot. When things are easy, it's easy. When things get hard, it gets hard to stay faithful. When marriage is easy, commitment is easy. It's one of the easiest days to be married is that first day after you get married. I just, I, every time I do marriage counseling with a couple, I try to put into them, I try to put deeply into them that when they say for better or for worse, that both of those things will be true. Because it is so easy to think it's just going to get better from here. Every day is going to get better and better and better than the next. And it's not going to be hard. No, marriage is hard. And when marriage gets hard, commitment gets hard. Faithfulness gets hard. When friendship is easy, commitment is easy. When friendship gets hard, boy, is it hard to stay committed to your friends. Life is hard. Hard. We go through trials and we get tested, and when we are uncomfortable, it is easy to be unfaithful. 
When we are uncomfortable, it's easy to act in that moment out of fear or out of comfort or for gain or just out of discomfort. So some of you are like Peter this morning and your posture before Jesus is you want to sing and say, Lord, I'll be faithful. And when things are going great, you probably will be. But when things get hard and you get uncomfortable, you make unfaithful decisions. Unfaithfulness looks like lashing out at others out of anger when things go wrong. Unfaithfulness looks like going to that website when we are dissatisfied or uncomfortable. Unfaithfulness looks like bending the rules at work that we would never be okay with anybody else doing, but we'll do it because we're unsatisfied. And we believe that we deserve the advantage over others. Unfaithfulness looks like ignoring God because we don't like the season he has us in. It looks like running to food or alcohol or pills for comfort and numbness. It looks like lying and saying everything is great when secretly we are struggling. Unfaithfulness looks like refusing to forgive because you just don't know what they did. It looks like lashing out with our tongues because, hey, I'm just telling the truth. I tell it like it is. It looks like looking down on others so that we feel superior. Unfaithfulness looks like ignoring our sins so we can feel good about who we are. It looks like gossiping about others so that we can fit in with that crowd. It looks like remaining silent when we know we should speak up. It looks like failing to share the gospel or the truth when someone in our life desperately needs it. Faithful, resilient love is hard. Unfaithfulness comes too easy. So this text wants you to see that betrayal is easy, unfaithfulness is easy, Judas is easy, Peter is easy, but there's one more character, and it's Jesus. And in the middle of unfaithfulness, Jesus remains faithful. In the middle of your unfaithfulness, Jesus remains faithful. He never adjusts his commitment to his disciples. By the time the night is over, all of his disciples will betray him. They will scatter. Judas will turn him in. Peter will deny that he follows him or even knows him. All of them will be unfaithful because that's who they are. That's who we are. That's who you are. But God's love is greater than your unfaithfulness. This morning, you need to be honest about your unfaithfulness. You need to take your unfaithfulness. You need to hold it up before God. And you need to say, here it is, Lord. I have been unfaithful. And yet still you love me. In the Old Testament, there is a, a word for love. It's the word hesed. And the word for Love, the word has said in the Old Testament in Hebrew, doesn't just mean love. It means faithful, steadfast, loyal love. And God's love endures forever. Sometimes, you ever notice that sometimes people make fun of Christians, especially Christians today in our worship music? 
and they say things like, man, why do we sing that chorus so many times? Sometimes we're singing it, and you might be thinking to yourself, Jens, I like this song and all, but why are we singing this chorus so many times? Too many times. And then we open up our Bibles and we read Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. His love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders. His love endures forever. Who by his understanding made the heavens. His love endures forever. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. His love endures forever. Who made the great lights, his love endures forever. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon, the stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, his love endures forever. That's verse 9. Do you want all 26? Again and again and again. God's love endures forever. His love is faithful. His love is loyal. His mercies never end. His grace for you has no bottom. His forgiveness is never off the table. So many of us stake our Christian relationship with God on our own faithfulness. Some of you here this morning, you want to be a more faithful disciple. How do you do that? Let me give you the secret. It's not that complicated, but, but this is it. This is the whole, this is everything. If you want to be a more faithful disciple, focus on his faithfulness to you. You can trust Jesus. He is faithful. You should trust Jesus. Everyone else is a liar. Everyone else is going to let you down. Only Jesus has perfect faithfulness. And the way we grow in our faith is not by focusing on our own unfaithfulness. It's by focusing on his faithfulness to us. It feels so counterintuitive. But so many of you want to become more faithful disciples. And the way you go about doing it is by trying to be more faithful. Let me tell you, the key is right in front of you. The one is right in front of you. You're walking out the door into the darkness of night. You're standing before Jesus saying, Jesus, I'll die for you. Meanwhile, Jesus is looking back at Peter and you going like, who do you think dies for who? It's not you for me. It's me for you. My love endures Forever. Do you want to be a more faithful husband? Do you want to be a more faithful wife? A more faithful brother? A more faithful sister? A more faithful father? A more faithful mother? A more faithful daughter or son? A more faithful disciple of Jesus? If you want to be a more faithful disciple of Jesus, the, the, the key ingredient, the thing you must do is to focus on him. Look at him. Those are the roads that sit before us this morning. Betrayal like Judas. You're not fooling him. He knows your heart. Denial like Peter. You're too confident in your own ability to remain faithful and not honest enough with yourself. 
or Jesus who stands before us this morning, is present with us this morning by his spirit, wanting you to see that his love for you endures forever. It is the key to your walk. It is the key to your discipleship. It is the key to your ability to love God and love your neighbor well. It's to stay remained in Christ, whose grace and love endures forever. Let us pray. Jesus, we, we are so unworthy and yet still you love us. We are unfaithful in so many ways. Our highs are high, our lows are low. We recommit our lives to you Sunday after Sunday and fail Monday after Monday. We struggle, we fail. Many of us grit our teeth, hoping that we can get better. Maybe this will be the week. We're looking at the wrong place. We're looking at ourselves and our strength. That's where, that's not, we won't find it there, Lord. Bring our eyes to Jesus. Help us to see his faithfulness to us. That that would transform our hearts and our lives. That this morning we would be honest about our unfaithfulness. We would hold it up to you, God. We wouldn't be afraid of the sting or the burn or the conviction or the pain of being honest about our failures. And as we do that, we would be met again and again and again by your unfailing love. And that that love would transform us into being people who would receive that new command and live it out. Jesus loved his enemies. Lord, help us to love ours. Jesus served those who mistreated him. Help us to serve when people mistreat us. Jesus brought along all kinds of people into his circle. Help us to be people who practice reconciliation with all kinds of people, all built on and in Jesus by the power of your spirit. And Lord, I pray for the Judases among us who have been faking it for days, weeks, months, and years. And they've got us all fooled. We all think that they're great. That they're one of us. But you know their hearts. Convict them this morning. And show them the beauty of Jesus. That they might lay down their kingdoms. Their plans. Their hopes. Their dreams. They'd lay it all down. So that they might fully receive you. You would be Lord and Savior, author of their life, strength in their weakness, wisdom in their confusion, clarity for them when they're lost. You are the faithful God. Your love endures forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.